Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 266. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy on again on this miserable wet day. It is soaking wet here. Oh man. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have Fact Article, it's the Science News by our very own JJ Campanella. Then the main fiction is Shadow Boxer by Paul DeFilippo. That is what is in store for today. Just a, before we get into that, a big thank you and a big heads up for everyone that came along to the Black Hole Sale. Tremendous, to be quite honest. It was fantastic. Thank you everyone that kind of dabbled in that and got a half price little or little event that was just, you know, a total success. So thank you, everyone. So first up, we have Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news, Jim Squire. Greetings and regenerations from the disaster capital of the world, my fine listeners, and welcome to this November 2012 science news update. I'm your host for this dread-inducing science podcast, Jim Campanella. Seriously, I'm pretty sick of being in Disaster Central for the last month, and I'm not so sure I look forward to the next month with its greater predictions of dire doom. For those of you in parts too far away to care or have heard, we here in New Jersey, USA, were terrorized by Hurricane Sandy, which ripped through this state, as well as the New York City area, like Gerard Depardieu at a smorgasbord. In short, devastation was left in its wake. Floods, down power lines, no gasoline, houses, cars, and people crushed under trees, and worst of all, Netflix is taking up to a week to get movies out to us through an almost stopped mail system. The horror. That was two weeks ago, and still many people I know are without power, and still my wife and thousands more cannot get into New York City for work using the train system because it is as dead as Romney's chances of becoming president. Huge trees still litter the area in places they should not be, and anyone with a house on the Atlantic shore considers themselves lucky if their house didn't just get washed out to sea. Oh, and we had a small earthquake here last week as well. Ah, yes, and a major snowstorm. At this point, I am wondering whether I shouldn't move somewhere relatively safe, like Iraq. We are now preparing ourselves for the plague of locusts. By the way... In case you didn't know, my science podcast is due up at the end of December. That's after the 21st, which is supposedly the Mayan end of the world. I was pretty skeptical, but if it keeps up around here the way it's been, I may just barricade myself in on December 20th. Enough kvetching. Let's talk about science. First up, one of our fine listeners, Conrad Berube. Sorry for the pronunciation, Conrad, if it's way, way off. Conrad was kind enough to email me with a correction about one of our October stories. You may remember that I discussed the construction of a time-space crystal clock last month, and one of the complaints and or questions that I had was whether it would be able to keep time after the heat death of the universe. My assumption was that the heat death of the universe would be the equivalent of absolute zero. Hence, no moving particles and no functioning time-space crystal clock. Well, Conrad pointed out to me that the definition of heat death of the universe is not absolute zero. It may be near absolute zero when it happens, but it simply means a homogeneous temperature throughout the universe with no hot spots left anywhere. If that's right, then the temp may be just high enough at the end there to allow that clock to be running for a couple billion more years. Another listener, Rob Clementi, 
emailed me wondering what the point of a clock after the heat death of the universe was and whether anybody would be around to see it. Well, I think the point of the clock was a theoretical exercise. I'm not sure that anyone needs a clock to last the next few quintillion years. Once everything is the same temperature, the universe attains a a steady state with no energy differences. There's no reason for anything to change what it's doing. Heat death is the point at which the universe has finally settled down completely from an energetic standpoint, and nothing interesting ever happens again. Will there be people around to see the clock? Not likely. By the definition of heat death, you cannot have any humans or any other life form alive or any civilization. Civilizations and life forms need energy to live. Without heat sources, there is no energy and no life forms. Basically, the combination of people living and the universe being heat dead is impossible. On the other hand, Rob, remember that we are talking many thousands of trillions of years in the future. If any of our descendants are around at that time, they will not even be remotely human. By that time, they may be sentient time-space crystals themselves, and then they could outlast the heat death of the universe, and maybe even check the time every once in a while on one of those old clocks. Sorry. My odd whimsy gets the better of me sometimes. Let's get on to our official first story of the night. I seem to have two camps of listeners when it comes to exoplanets. One camp thinks that I give too many updates on possible extrasolar planets, and the other group thinks I should actually spend more time giving some of those updates. Well, I sort of call them as I pick them up in the journals. If there are stories about exoplanets, you'll hear about them. And if not, then not. Pretty straightforward there. Dr. Hugh Jones and his colleagues at the University of Hertfordshire report in the November issue of the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics on a new potentially Earth-like planet that is only 42 light-years away in the constellation Pictor. The star, HD 40307, was thought to harbor only three planets, but Jones's sensitive data filtering methods reveal the presence of three additional planets. The farthest out of these new babies lies in the life zone at a distance from its star where liquid, and life, at least theoretically, could exist. Jones says, quote, It's the position of the planet in its orbit that's important. This planet orbits close enough to its sun-like star so that it could have similar temperatures to Earth. Further, the planet is not putting the same face to its star all the time, like the moon, and it seems to have rotation like the Earth does. Unquote. As anyone who listens regularly to this podcast knows, only a handful of planets have been discovered in the habitable region around their stars. Nothing is as yet known about this new planet's physical and geochemical properties, but Jones says it would make a good target for a space-based imaging mission because it's so close to Earth. That is, as opposed to imaging one of the other possibly habitable super-Earths, like Kepler-22b, which is much farther away than HD 4307, about 620 light-years from Earth. Jones says, quote, Ultimately, the aim of this research is to constrain the types of solar systems that might support life. The more that stars and solar systems are like our sun and its solar system, the more interesting they are to study, unquote. The next story. Why look for aliens out there on exoplanets when we can just play Dr. Doolittle and see how the alien species on our own planet think? This next story threw me for a bit of a loop since I was surprised that it was even possible. But this journal article, and recording as you'll hear from the journal Current Biology, make me think of the movie Day of the Dolphin, which by the way I recommend to anyone who loves George C. Scott movies or conspiracy thrillers. Or, well, dolphin movies. No, the story from the lab of Dr. Angela Stoger at the University of Vienna is not about talking dolphins, like in Day of the Dolphin. It's about talking elephants, which is something that seems even less likely. Acoustic biologist Stoger was on a trip to Asia, and she discovered a male elephant called Koshik, who was housed in a Korean zoo. Koshik makes sounds close in pitch to human language and reminds Korean speakers of actual words. According to Stoger, this is the first scientifically, systematically studied case of an elephant mimicking human speech, which I do not find too hard to believe. Stoger visited Koshik 
in South Korea's Everland Zoo. Koshik curls his trunk from the right side and puts the tip into his mouth before making sounds. Because the tip of his trunk covers his mouth, it's just about impossible to see exactly what his trunk tip is doing. But the resulting sounds approximate the pitch of tones in human speech. To see whether the elephant could be understood by the average Korean speaker, Stoger played recordings of Koshik's utterances for 16 Korean speakers, asking them to transcribe the sounds regardless of whether they were actual words or nonsense. Two-thirds of the listeners agreed on the vowels, but said that Koshik's consonants weren't even close to being correct. Half of the listeners copied down Koshik vocalizing Annyeong, which means hello in Korean. Almost half heard Anya, which is Korean for no, which the zoo elephant had probably heard plenty of times. About 15% of the listeners also agreed they heard Nuo, lie down, Anja, sit down, and Choa, which is good. Stoger says, quote, Koshik can respond appropriately to words, but there's no evidence he uses the sounds with a sense of their meaning. For example, Koshik did not get upset if his keepers didn't sit down when he told them to sit, unquote. I know you're curious, so here is a recording of Koshik from Stoger's website. The elephant is saying Choa, which is good in Korean. You can then hear the clearly human trainer speaking after him saying Choa Anyong, which is good hello. Well, since I don't speak Korean, it sounds pretty good to me, but I could be wrong. According to Stoger, there have been other animals which have been studied who also have mimicked human speech. Uh, There was an orphan harbor seal in Boston named Hoover who was hand-raised in a bathtub before being moved to an aquarium, and also a white whale called Nock, whose occasional speech-like sounds confuse the heck out of human divers in his tank. I suspect if any of these animals was doing anything more than mimicking, they would probably be asking for immediate release. Next story. For those of you who have been fans of this podcast since the very beginning, and I do mean both Starship Sofa and the Science News, you may remember one of the first stories that I told from several years back, which I discussed having to do with memory erasure. It came up in conjunction with a discussion of some of Tony Smith's fears and bad memories. As longtime listeners know, since the very beginning, Tony has never been averse to talking about himself. At any rate, there was some research years ago that suggested that someday there would be drug treatments available that could erase bad memories and reduce fears in doing so. And I have mentioned progress along those lines over the last few years. Well, those drug treatments promised so many years ago are much closer than they've ever been. At the Society for Neuroscience meeting in New Orleans on October 17th, it was reported by neuroscientist Dr. Asia Rolls of Stanford University that she and her team have a treatment to help forget bad memories. After a drug treatment, fearful associations can be knocked back, quote-unquote, during sleep. Now, this research has been done in mice. Rolls taught her mice that when they smelled jasmine, an electric shock would follow. A day later, as the mice slept, the researchers wafted the smell over the animals, strengthening and solidifying the scary link between jasmine and pain. A day after that, the mice froze in fear when they caught a whiff of jasmine, even though the animals were in an entirely new room unassociated with the original shock. But rolls could interrupt this sleep-strengthening process with an antibiotic. She injected anisomycin, into the amygdala, which is a brain structure involved in memory storage. Before the mice were exposed to jasmine during sleep, the researchers injected their brains with some of this antibiotic. The next day, these mice didn't freeze as much as the mice who didn't get the drug. The results suggest that during sleep, traumatic memories, such as the kind that plague people with post-traumatic stress disorder, can be effectively weakened. 
As an explanation, Rolls suggested that during sleep, the mind is not rooted in any particular environment, so the effect of curbing traumatic memories in someone who is fast asleep wouldn't be linked to any specific setting, such as a doctor's office. She says, quote, This could protect a person from re-experiencing the trauma in other situations. What's more, because sleep is a brain state outside of conscious control, it may offer access to memories that are locked up tight during waking hours. And reactivating traumatic memories during sleep may be less painful for people, sparing them the difficulty of reliving a traumatic experience while awake. Unquote. This exact method may not work very well for humans, though. Rolls says, quote, The drug used in the study was chosen because it targets protein production in cells, a process that strengthens memory during sleep. But the drug does have side effects, and it wouldn't be reasonable to inject it into humans' brains. Still, there might be other safe ways to destroy harmful memories during sleep in people. I think this has huge potential, unquote. And I really must agree with her. Next story. You may think that scientists are a staid lot who go to very boring scientific conferences, and for the most part, you would probably be right if you compared us to conventions of, say, plumbers or dock workers. But this next story was passed along to me by a friend who went to the annual meeting last month of the American Society of Human Genetics. And it suggests that scientists are not quite as boring as one might think. Well, not quite as boring. At the conference, dozens of researchers played something called buzzword bingo during scientific presentations. The game was played on randomly generated bingo cards from the conference website. To play, the attendees listened for speakers to spout certain overused words or phrases or flash slides bearing off-scene images and then tap the corresponding box on the bingo card. Some of the phrases are ones audiences could hear at any symposium, such as asking if the laser pointer is working or the classic, how am I doing for time? Both of which I think I have said myself. Others are things that you'd only hear at a genetics conference and which you'd pretty much hear nowhere else, like metagenomics or exome chip or $1,000 genome and missing heritability. Heck, you've probably heard me spout some of those. Other weirder references were things like mentions of a little boy from Wisconsin named Nicholas Volker, whose doctors used his DNA sequence as part of his care, or famous scientists like NIH director Francis Collins, or the father of the personal genetics movement, George Church. Those could also earn players a square if they were on a bingo card. No one shouted bingo in the middle of talks, from what I heard. That would be rude. Even scientists know that. I am told that the perfect way to win would have been to ask a question of the speaker and incorporate bingo into the question, which I guess actually happened a couple of times. I was told that most players who got bingos submitted their scorecards online, and the winners were announced on Twitter. See, scientists are interesting, sad, kind of pathetic, but interesting. How many times have you heard this statement in a really bad movie? Don't move, Bob, and calm yourself down. That predator can smell your fear. Can animals smell fear? It appears the answer is yes, but it really depends on the animal. This new paper by Dr. Mark Weisberg from Georgia Tech in the journal Experimental Biology suggests that crabs can indeed smell fear. Weisberg studied blue crabs. Blue crabs tend to avoid injured crabs and give them a wide berth when they produce an odor when they're injured. They treat it as a warning that a larger predator may be lurking nearby. In short, if a crab smells the fear scent of another crab, it goes in the other direction, probably for fear that it may become lunch instead if it stays in the neighborhood. To study the phenomenon more closely, Weisberg collected crabs from the ocean off Georgia and returned them to the lab where he started to test their reactions to plumes of different odors in a flow tank. Surely enough, when the animals were downstream of luscious, shrimpy smells, they practically ran toward the origin. However, when the water smelled of injured crabs, the animals became evasive and some even buried themselves to avoid the stench. Weisberg then tested how they would react when the two odors were actually flowing in parallel, side by side in close proximity. This time, the crabs were much more cautious. 
Discriminating between the plumes and following the attractive odor to its source, the crabs were able to successfully home in on the food despite the close proximity of the warning signal. Although they continued to pursue the attractive scent, the crabs actively avoided the side of the tunnel that smelled of injured crab. If the odors were mixed in turbulent water, the crab's perception of the tasty prawn aroma was diluted sufficiently for it to no longer find the smell attractive. Weisberg decided to find out which of their many olfactory organs the crabs used to distinguish between the attractive and aversive odors. He found that the odors were detected by the antennules, and these are small structures between the eyes on the head of the crab. The next story has to do with the so-called 1000 genome study that was undertaken a couple of years ago. This genome study was an attempt to sequence a thousand different people and then look for genetic variants that might lead to a better understanding of the complex traits like height or diseases. And it turns out that the study ended up with more than a thousand genomes. They actually got over 6,000. It was reported at the American Society of Human Genetics conference in Houston that researchers found one million variants in the exomes of more than 6,700 individuals. But most, it turns out, have little effect on complex traits, which was a bit of a letdown. Although roughly 720,000 of these variants affected the resulting protein sequences, the team could only link a few of these variants to any disease pathways. For example, the researchers found an association between a variant in the APOC3 gene, which reduced uh, triglyceride levels, fat levels in the blood. Subjects were recruited from existing NIH studies, including the Jackson Heart Study, the Atherosclerosis Risk in Community Study, and the Women's Health Initiative Project. The team selected subjects based on disease phenotypes that they were interested in, like high or low lipid levels, extreme blood pressures, or early-onset heart attacks. In all, the researchers analyzed more than 80 heart, lung, and blood phenotypes. Unlike other genomic studies, this one only looked at protein-coding regions of the genome and not at any of the regulatory regions. Most of the variations were found in specific populations. For example, there were gene variants associated with varying white blood cell counts in African Americans, while there were variants in the F7 gene that appeared to influence levels of factor 7, which is an important protein needed in the coagulation of blood cascade. And that was found in European Americans. The new study also confirmed some previously known associations, such as high levels of low-density lipoprotein, that is so-called bad cholesterol, that uh, track with certain variants of the ApoB gene, and associations between the LEPR gene variants and levels of C-reactive protein that seem to increase the body's response to inflammation and have been suggested to have something to do with likelihood of people getting cancer. After the study, it was concluded that the effect of rare genetic variants aren't as great as many scientists predicted, so they will need quite a larger sample size in order to detect any associations. In fact, they are now setting up to look at tens of thousands of people using DNA chip analysis technology, which was actually developed during the first study. The last story of the night has to do with radiation. Before World War II, it was in vogue, for some reason I can't really quite imagine, to consider that radioactivity was healthful. The Home Products Company of Denver, Colorado, advertised in the 1930s for a radioactive suppository for men that would cure impotence. Seems to me that putting anything radioactive in there was not a good idea, but men thought differently back then. It was discovered that healthful mineral springs had detectable levels of radiation, so it was assumed 70 or 80 years ago that radiation must be good for you. There was an onslaught of radioactive consumer products after that, and people by the thousands lined up to buy them. Like the patent medicines that preceded them, most of these products were not developed by doctors or clinically tested, but were instead designed by business people to take advantage of the craze. To make water more healthful, it was stored in radioactive coolers. And sadly, not many people, including doctors, associated drinking water from a uranium-lined water cooler for five years with the leukemia that developed 15 years later. Something called radione tablets were popular in the 1920s, and they were just what they sounded like, radium tablets. And they were advertised to give you energy. Ew, I'm sure they did give you energy, Probably not the kind you wanted, though. 
The 1930s brought radium bread, radium face cream for that healthful glow, and even special radium-filled devices for sale that you could place over your testicles overnight to make you more manly. Okay, where am I going with this demented little history lesson? Well, weird as it sounds, Dr. Randy Yertle of the University of Wisconsin reported November 1st in the FACEB Journal that he has found some health benefits to radiation at low levels in mice. He says that radiation acts differently at low doses and produces health benefits for mice who have an unusual genetic makeup. Yertle studied mice known as viable yellow agoutis. These mice are regularly employed to gauge how diet, chemicals, and other environmental conditions affect gene activity in animals, including humans. Agouti mice have a genetic quirk that causes the agouti coat color gene to be turned on in all their body tissues. They have yellow coats, they are yellow mice, they are obese, and they're much more likely to get diabetes and cancer than normal mice. If you attach chemical tags to the DNA in a process called DNA methylation around the agouti gene, it shuts the gene's activity down, leading to lean, brown, healthy mice. Chemical stress or other factors that interfere with that methylation process shift the coat color and health status of the mice, either in one direction where they're unhealthy or in the other direction to make them more healthy. Yertle irradiated pregnant mice at a level of 0.4 centigrades and 7.6 centigrades. Just to put the level of radiation in perspective, a human dental x-ray gives you about 0.4 to 0.8 centigrades. Mother mice that got irradiated had more pups with browner coats than the control mice did. Brown coat color among mice exposed to low-dose radiation was associated with higher levels of DNA methylation on the agouti gene, that is, turning off the agouti gene. In other words, it looks like the DNA methylation of the agouti gene was increased somehow, indicating that radiation does something to alter that chemical tagging. And in this case, turning off the agouti gene that made the mice fat and diabetes-prone. Here is the kicker, and it's even weirder. Yertle found out that in this case, giving the pregnant mice antioxidant vitamins actually made the offspring sicker. It seems that the antioxidants blocked the process of methylation tagging that turned off the agouti gene. Yertle suggests that radiation is creating oxidants, chemicals that are hungry to interact with other molecules. Too many oxidants in a cell can literally tear proteins, DNA, and other chemical components apart. But small numbers of oxidants serve as chemical messengers in cells. Apparently, in this case, low-level radiation may have signaled cells to shut down the agouti activity, thus making the mice healthier. But, and it is a big but, vitamins and other antioxidants that intercept those messages would promote the unhealthy state in the offspring. As you can imagine, Yertle wasn't exactly thrilled with this result. Quote, Nobody wants to think that low-dose radiation could be advantageous. And worse, the stuff that you put in your vitamin pill would be bad for you, unquote. It's completely unclear whether any of this has anything to do with humans and whether low doses of radiation can help people in any way, shape, or form. But back in the 1930s, before antibiotics became widespread, some doctors actually successfully treated ear and sinus infections and gangrene with low doses of x-rays. So there is at least some history of the idea, but somehow I suspect a lot more evidence is going to be needed before anybody around today lets a doctor irradiate him like they're David Bruce Banner or something. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. In the unlikely event, the end of the world comes before my next podcast in December. Thanks for listening, and I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time, Maybe. This is Jim Campanella. Jim, thank you. Before we get into the main fiction as well, I'm just going to give you a heads up. 26th of January, that's when the next 
how to write science fiction and it's with spider robinson just gearing up now to get all that in the process as well to get all that up and running and hopefully i'm gonna have a little chat with spider you know a little kind of private chat with spider tonight if if it all comes off so next up is main fiction and it's by paul de Filippo, and this story is called shadow boxer Shadow Boxer came out in 2004. It was first in Amazing Stories, which was the December edition, edited by David Gross. Then Paul put it out in his collection, Should I for the Time Broker, 2006. We'll play a number of stories by Paul de Filippo. If anyone doesn't know who Paul is, I'll give you here's his little bio. Paul de Filippo is the author of hundreds of short stories, some of which have been collected in the widely praised collections, the Steampunk Trilogy, Ribofunk, Factual Paisley, Little Doors, Strange Tides, Babylon Sisters, and his multi-award-nominated novella, A Year in the Linear City. And actually on Paul's bio as well, it also says, another earlier collection, Destroy All Brains, was published by Pirate Writings, but it's quite rare because of extremely short print runs. So if you see one, buy it. We've had, like I say, a number of short stories on Starship from Paul, just you know, an awesome writer, the amount of kind of work he can kind of get through, the amount of short stories he's got. First one came up, Fallen Expectations in 1977, and I hate to count how many Pauls wrote there. His last one, which is 2012, A Plazo in the Stars, which was published by Solaris Rising 1.5, an exclusive ebook of new science fiction, which came out in July 2012. I'll actually, and it was edited by Ian Waits, and we've played a story by Ian Waits as well, so I'll try and tap Ian and see if I can get a couple of, or a, a story from that collection, just to see what it's like. This story is narrated by Wilson Fowley. Wilson lives in Vancouver, Canada, with his wife and two children. He says, by day, he programs computers for a living. By night, well, some evenings, he's a director of a community show chorus. In his spare time he has left, he narrates stories for various podcasts. And he actually says he intends to record a voiceover demo any day now. Wilson's got a cracking voice as well, so I hope you enjoy this narration and story. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Shadow Boxer by Paul DiFilippo Generally speaking, I need only three minutes of concentrated attention to kill someone by staring at them. If I'm feeling under the weather, or my mind is preoccupied with other matters, you know how your mind can obsess about trivial things sometimes. It might take five minutes for my power to have its effect. On the other hand, if I focus intensely on my victim, I can get the job done in as little as 90 seconds. Another factor determining the speediness of my powers is the constitution of my victim. As you might imagine, the elderly and frail and ailing require less effort to kill than the hale and hardy and young. But no one is immune from my gaze. At least, no one I have yet encountered. And I've encountered plenty. Now the nation is at war. Or so we're told. I guess that changes everything. A person like me becomes much more important. Sometimes it feels like I've always lived in these few rooms. But I know I've been penned up here for only a couple of years. Still, that's a long time to go without seeing another person, even for a loner like me. It's a wonder I'm still sane. If indeed I am. The first time I got photos of kids as part of my killing assignment, I staged a strike for three days. Wouldn't use my power at all. There was no punishment meted out by my unseen employers. No diminishment of my limited perks. I couldn't figure out what they intended, how they hoped to coerce me. But then on the fourth day, the media did their job for them. I read in the U.S. News and World Report about a bus bombing in Israel. Thirteen people killed and dozens wounded. The bomber had been a teenage girl. Her photo had been in a pile. When they resubmitted the photos of the kids, minus the girls, I went straight to work on them. I call all of the different guys who speak to me over the intercom connecting me with the outside world, Dave. Occasionally, a woman is on duty, and I call her Dave, too. She's fractionally nicer than the guys, in some indefinable sense, but still pretty blank. They refuse to tell me their real names, of course, or even to supply a friendly alias, so this is my countermeasure. I reduce them all to the same individual. They're just following orders, I know, when they withhold their names, but still, you'd think they'd have some human feeling for their prisoner. I'm helping them, after all, aren't I? Doing good for my country? I suppose everyone's nervous about me taking some kind of revenge against any of my captors whose real name was revealed if I ever escape, but they don't have to worry about that. 
I haven't really killed anyone for personal reasons since I became a professional assassin. Killing someone with an emotional or personal connection to me was a sure way to get caught eventually, I believed. Therefore, I have learned to rein in my natural emotional reactions to insults and slights and aggression. As an adult, committing murder with my peculiar talent meant money, not revenge. Now, they tell me, my lethal actions mean the survival of Western civilization. Killing randomly or for personal reasons would have violated my code of survival. Having a code is important to me. Sometimes I think about my parents. I was an only child, but they didn't dote on me. I was just an accepted part of the household furnishings, like the couch or the television. They weren't mean to me, just indifferent. Maybe that treatment had something to do with how I am today. Still, I never bore them any ill will, and certainly never thought once about using my power on them. They're alive and well as far as I know. I don't know where my current living quarters are located. Once I was kidnapped by a squad of rough men in my darkened bedroom, I couldn't see a thing. I was brought here drugged into unconsciousness. The place is a suite of five rooms, not spartan, not luxurious, but rather like the rooms in a decent chain hotel. There are no windows, naturally. Something about the atmosphere, the tasteless processed air, leads me to believe that I am deep underground in some government bunker. The perfect silence contributes to that impression as well, although, for all I know, I could be on the fiftieth floor of some urban tower, immured behind yards of soundproofing, or in a cabin in the middle of some federal wilderness area, or on an abandoned oil platform out at sea. I have a very nice bedroom, a living room, an exercise room, a kitchen, and a game room. The furniture is all quite comfortable. Oh, and of course, a quite satisfactory bathroom. I guess that makes six rooms, but I don't think the bathroom is conventionally counted in real estate descriptions. The living room contains a TV, but the set receives no broadcast or cable channels. I can use it only with the attached DVD player or Xbox. I have a computer, but no internet connection. I'm using that machine to keep this journal. The game room features a dartboard and a ping-pong table. Being alone, I don't get much use out of the table tennis setup, but I've gotten pretty damn good with the darts. The whole place, I'm certain, is wired to the max. Cameras and microphones record my every action around the clock. The tapes must be excruciatingly boring for any Dave delegated to monitor them. When I'm not performing my assigned killings, all I do is lounge around trying to keep myself moderately entertained. I cook most of my own meals, using the kitchen and the supplies delivered while I'm locked into my bedroom at specific times. The intercom orders me to retreat to the bedroom, and the door is locked by remote control, a solenoid thunking the bolt home. I've never tried to see what would happen if I disobeyed. I can order out if I want. The franchised pizza and fried chicken and tacos arrive hot and fresh, which I suppose eliminates the possibility that I'm held in some remote area. Unless, of course, they've gone to the trouble to duplicate the kitchens and staffs of those fast food joints right outside my door so as to conceal any clues to my real whereabouts from me. I wouldn't put that past them. All I have to do to get these meals is ask politely over the intercom that connects me with my unseen captors. I can't conduct frivolous conversations over that channel, but the Daves will attend to my legitimate requests. They'll provide me with books and magazines, too. No newspapers, though. The photos in newspapers are often too recent and could be dangerous. Of course, you wonder about sex. I'm a normal guy in my early thirties, so I have the usual urges. I jerk off a lot in the dark. Maybe they've got infrared capabilities in their cameras and can see me. So what? I'm only human, after all. The way I was found out was this. Van Tran had me do a job for a politician. Then news of my existence filtered into government circles and my abduction was practically guaranteed. I would still be free if only criminals knew about me. My power manifested for the first time when I entered puberty. Just like Carrie, right? I was a wimpy little kid, always getting picked on. Bullies seemed to gravitate toward me, happy and eager to punch the shit out of me. I never did anything to deserve their ire except for existing, just like I never did anything special to gain my power. In both cases, it's just the fluky way the universe works. I understand and accept that completely. So, the year I was thirteen, the particular bane of my school-day existence was this porky six-footer named Tony Grasso. Tony had been held back more than once, and now stood out among the rest of his classmates like Andre the Giant among a reunion of munchkin actors. The day I killed Tony, he'd cornered me in the lavatory and given my head a thorough rinsing in the toilet, before laughingly departing with my new calculator in his pocket. I didn't mind the dunking as much as I resented the loss of my calculator to such an oaf, especially since I was certain Tony would probably be unable even to find the on switch. 
After I had cleaned myself up as best I could, I went to my next class, and there was Tony, leering at me and silently challenging me to rat him out. But of course I did no such thing. Instead, I took a seat as far away from him as I could, intending to focus on the class and enjoy the teaching. The class was math, and I liked it a lot. But I found myself unable to concentrate on the teacher's presentation. I couldn't take my eyes off Tony's hateful profile. Seeing my victims in profile, I later learned, was not as effective as seeing them full face. And in my raging mind, I couldn't help picturing him dying in a hundred different ways. I pictured Tony torn apart by wolves. I pictured him struck by cars. I pictured him impaled on the spiked fence that surrounded the local library. I pictured him writhing from poison. And so on. I always had a good imagination, and all these images were as vivid and real as my powerful imagination could make them. In fact, I felt as if I was actually witnessing Tony's multiple deaths, not just daydreaming them, as if the scenes were playing out before my eyes. Anyway, after about five minutes of this morbid reverie, I saw Tony keel over onto his desk without making a sound, except for the thump of his head, before bonelessly sliding to the floor. Girls shrieked, boys jumped up, and the teacher dashed out for help. But there was nothing anyone could do. Tony was quite dead. His autopsy revealed a fatal congenital heart defect, but one that no prior exam had ever discovered. For a while I believed that the whole gruesome affair was sheer coincidence. My imagining Tony dead could have had nothing to do with his actual death. But it only took a few more experiments to prove to my own satisfaction that I had killed Tony. Of course, I made sure that those subsequent victims were not my fellow classmates. Even at age 13, I knew that a rash of deaths among my peers would have alerted even the most skeptical investigator. Bums and strangers, clerks, a nanny in the park, and a policeman or two. They all got congenital heart defects from me, or fatal aneurysms. I couldn't predict which defect would arise from my evil eye, but it was always one or the other. Did I say my apartment has no mirrors or other reflective surfaces in it? The question of who exactly my captors represent offers me endless material for speculation. The nature of all my victims since coming here convinces me that my talents are currently being employed by the government of the United States of America, but which agency? The CIA? The FBI? The NSA? Homeland Security? Or some even more covert set of initials? Maybe I'm under the jurisdiction of some branch of the military. Am I an honorary Marine or SEAL by now? Will I be freed with medals and a letter of commendation once the war on terror is over? And when exactly will that day come? Does the president know about me? Or am I some special project overseen by some unelected bureaucrat to maintain ultimate deniability higher up the chain of command? Which black budget contains the minimal expenses connected with my upkeep? Am I listed as general maintenance on some anonymous submarine, or perhaps as a box of $600 hammers? I don't suppose I'll ever find out. More intriguingly, I spend a lot of time asking myself whether I agree with the uses to which my talents are being put. It might very well be that for the first time in my adult life, I am actually performing some selfless acts and helping with the preservation of my nation. Would I have volunteered for such duties if I had been approached openly? Or would I have disdained any such exercise of my powers in support of the national interests in favor of the pampered life I once led? Again, it's hard to answer such a hypothetical question. I can only confront and judge my actions as they currently exist under the current conditions. Most days, I find I'm actually a trifle proud of what I'm doing, although sometimes I sink into a kind of numb apathy at the unvarying nature of my kills. Maybe this is just a rationalization I have to maintain in order not to hate myself. Discussing such matters with my captors might help, but this is not a luxury I am permitted. I think my talent is one that everyone imagines they would like to have, but believe me, it's not really that wonderful a gift. Van Tran was my boss from age 22 until I was taken by the government. He was an Asian criminal big shot. I met him at the funeral of some people I had helped. I got into a conversation with him. He remarked about the uncanny way that someone connected with the funeral had died. He said how happy and grateful he was that that person had met his untimely death. Somehow I found myself spilling my secret to him, the first time I had ever told anyone what I could do. Amazingly, Van expressed no disbelief in my powers. Some traditions from his heritage and ancient culture conduced him to believe me. He asked me if I wanted a job. I had never gone to college after high school. Although I was a smart kid, I found that I just had no ambition, couldn't sustain any goals. I blame that attitude on my powers. 
The arbitrary nature of death, as exemplified by my own abilities, left me feeling that life could end at any time and nothing was worth struggling for. So I told Van, yes, I'd like a job. I became his secret hitman. I killed anyone he asked me to, mostly fellow criminals, but quite often not. The money was very, very good, and I lived a peaceful, satisfied life. No Dave ever uses my name when he hails me over the intercom. I suppose they are only following orders in this regard, too. Instead, they simply call out, Attention! Some Daves bark out the word as a command, while others are more polite, even saying, Attention, please! The woman is one of the polite ones. Today I am reading when the call for attention sounds. It's one of the brusker Daves. I put down my book. It's a good book about a guy who is fed up with his life and moves to a little house in the country. Sounds like my situation, except I wasn't really fed up with my old life, and I didn't get to choose my retreat. The command for attention is followed by the instructions I've come to know so well. There is a photo awaiting you in the door. Retrieve it and perform your standard function on the subject. Sure thing, Dave, I reply. I go to the lone door in my apartment. Set midway in the door is a hinged panel. I pull down the panel and a receptacle big enough to hold a cafeteria tray piled with food is revealed. Of course, the far side of this space is blocked by another panel, this one locked. I often speculate about whether this delivery system is a box bolted to the outside of a normal door, or if the door itself is very thick like one of those blast doors in a government bunker. This is how I get my magazines and fast food meals delivered, and also, of course, the photos of my victims. The photograph this time is generically similar to the majority of the others I've processed so far. It's a portrait of an Arabic-looking young man, largest nose, wispy beard, disorderly black hair, fanatical eyes, grim mouth. An improbably jaunty scarf is tied around his neck. As usual, there is no information given as to his name or age or nationality. His crimes are not detailed either. All that I need to know is that the people who control me want him dead. I take the photograph back to my comfortable recliner and go to work. Something about this victim's impregnable smugness, his air of righteous zealotry, irritates me, and I decide to go slow and be thorough. I picture myself jamming the barrel of a pistol up his nostrils, shattering cartilage. I twist the gun cruelly before I blow the top of his head off, splattering the wall against which he's posed with his brains. I take an automatic rifle and use every bullet in its magazine to cut him literally in half. I duct-tape several grenades to his crotch and pull the pins. I use a knife on his eyes and tongue before severing his jugular veins. And so on. At the end of five minutes, I'm quite sure that this man, wherever he is on the planet, is dead. One less terrorist to undermine global civilization. One less Chechen or Algerian, Taliban or Syrian. Or so I hope. I often wonder if there is anyone else with my powers. If such a being exists, perhaps he or she is in the employ of rival powers, and one day my own photo will fall into their hands. This is a strangely comforting thought. Maybe you've read about that study which investigated the efficacy of prayers in the healing process. The researchers found out that patients who were prayed for by friends and relatives and who knew about the prayers healed faster. But then the experimenters went one step further. They got strangers to pray remotely for certain patients and never even told the patients they were getting such special attention. And the subjects still healed faster than average. That study seems to provide some sort of explanation for what I do. Except I don't say prayers. And I doubt the same God is answering mine. The way I found out my power worked on photographs of people, on shadows of their souls, as good as if I was standing right next to them was like this. One day when I was about 22, I was reading the newspaper and came across this article about a local drunken driver who had wiped out a whole Asian family while they were crossing a street. He was one of those unrepentant types who refused even to admit he was at fault, said something about the family jaywalking. I actually knew the people who got killed. They weren't close friends or relatives, but they ran a variety store in my neighborhood. I stopped in there a lot, and the owners were always nice to me. Learning how these people had died... I got so pissed, I started doing my thing on the newspaper photo of the drunken driver at his arrest. On the evening news, I heard he had died in custody of natural causes. This was the mysteriously apt death I would discuss with Van Tran at the funeral for the store owners. Just like when I had first discovered my powers, I had to do a little experimenting with this new photo trick. I found out that any photo had to be no more than 24 hours old for me to succeed in killing the victim. 
freshness counted. There must be something about a person's nature that continually changes with time and makes them a different person than what they were a day before when they were earlier photographed. I don't like to use the word soul, but maybe that's the part that changes, gets updated with experience. Also, the image of the victim's face had to be highly detailed. Remote shots of little human smudges didn't cut it. I wondered if television pictures would work as well. I tried, but the results were inconclusive. You know why? No single image stayed on the screen long enough for me to concentrate on. When's the last time you saw a person's face occupy the screen for three minutes without some kind of interruption, even if it's only a change in camera angles? And that was enough to reset my efforts to zero. But my captors must have thought there was a possibility I could do it since they blocked the TV here from reception. I would have liked to see certain obnoxious TV personalities keel over live on camera, but I just never got the chance to make it happen. Of course, I sometimes wonder if I am insane, if I am not alone in a padded cell hallucinating all this. But then I remember killing Tony Grasso and all the killings that followed over the years in such clear and vivid detail that I am again convinced of the reality of my present situation, and I don't believe I could have come up with such a delusion on my own. Mutant soldier in the war on terrorism. Before my capture, I never gave two thoughts to the war on terror. Now, of course, it's with me all the time. Two weeks after I killed the young Arab wearing the scarf, I got my usual delivery of delayed news magazines. My employer makes sure the issues aren't current, just in case any photos were taken 24 hours before distribution. In the coverage of the Middle East, I saw pictures of a public funeral where my victim was the corpse. The text claimed he was a Hamas organizer who had been poisoned by infidels. Well, yes, I suppose so, after a fashion. I don't believe I've yet mentioned how long I've been doing this job, playing my part in the war on terror. Almost three years now, I was abducted in early 2002. Is my activity the reason why the United States has not experienced a domestic terror attack since September 11th? I like to think so, but I can't be sure. It's not as easy to get a suitable photo of a terrorist as you might imagine, but not as hard either. I keep waiting for a picture of Bin Laden, for instance, but it hasn't shown up yet. He must be hiding really well. Or maybe for some reason they don't want him dead yet. Generally speaking, if a Western operative can snap such a photo, they'd be in a position just to assassinate the guy outright and they wouldn't need me. But lots of times, it seems, unwitting and greedy people close to the victim will provide a photo for money thinking, what harm could it do? I am the answer to that question that they must never learn. Thinking about souls some more, I find additional comfort to support me in my work. If people do have souls, then I'm only liberating their essences from their imperfect shells, returning them to the source for another try at a better life, maybe. I think I read some similar philosophy once in a science fiction novel. It's good to be unemotional about what I do. Killing Tony Grasso was really the one and only time I felt pure hatred for any of my victims. After that, it was always just a job or an experiment. Between the ages of 13 and 22, I estimate that I caused the deaths of only about 50 people. That's only roughly five a year. A record that shows admirable restraint, I think. Even the terrorists don't push my buttons. I dislike what they're trying to do. Civilization doesn't need toppling, especially by jerks who offer only crude substitutes they intend to enact in its place. And I'm as patriotic as the next guy, so I'm pleased to be able to help my country. But all my killing is basically as simple to me as breathing. It's just something I do to stay alive. The photos come to me in random batches. No one can predict on any given day whether many terrorists or just a few will be careless enough to get photographed. Sometimes many days go by and I don't receive a single photo. Other times I get three or more in the same day. After killing the terrorist with a scarf, I had a long break. I cooked elaborate meals, tossed darts, and read. I asked for extra DVDs. But then came a busy period. I had to kill two or three people a day. Strangulation, disembowelment, explosions, falls from great heights. My imagination really got a workout. And on that topic, I find that I need to envision new styles of death from time to time in order to keep my mind from wandering during the killing process. Luckily, the modern world offers no shortage of novel methods of dying. The news and entertainment media alone can keep me supplied with an endless flow of imagery to borrow. I do a lot of beheadings lately. Attention! There is a photo awaiting you in the door. Retrieve it and perform your standard function on the subject. After the busy period, this is the first call for my services in several days. Without any haste, I walk to the door and find the photo of my next victim. 
Surprisingly, the fellow is a middle-aged Caucasian man, European-looking, not your usual terrorist. But then again, I read that terrorists have been recruiting just such types recently, converts to Islam mostly, to avoid being easily profiled. I have some vague memories of seeing his face before. He could be a terrorist sympathizer like John Walker Lind or that Australian guy held at Guantanamo. But in any case, my job is not to question why, but just to make him die. So I do, using several new methods I picked up from reading true crime accounts of serial killers. Sometimes I wonder if the non-rational, unscientific, mystical response that I represent to the war on terrorism was not inevitable. The rhetoric and actions of the terrorists are so archaic, so delusionary, so hallucinatory and superstitious, that the only effective countermeasures must partake of the same qualities. One has to be a shadow boxer to fight shadows. Even if my powers were a lie, even if I were not killing anyone, perhaps the deliberately leaked news of my government-sanctioned existence would be an effective anti-terrorist weapon in itself. My regular delivery of news magazines stopped for three weeks. I asked the Daves why, but they wouldn't answer me. Of course, I immediately suspected that they were hiding something from me, but I wasn't clever enough to figure out what. Having this power of mine was not really such a big deal in the end. I couldn't use it to become fabulously rich or to rule the world. At least I couldn't figure out any way to accomplish those things. All it did was earn me an upper-middle-class income without much exertion. Then it got me locked up here. I'm forced to conclude that killing people, even remotely and without laying a hand on them, is just not very useful or creative. It's an activity with limited potential for payback. The Dave who summons me today is the somewhat friendly woman, and she sounds unusually nervous. I have never heard any of the Daves sound uncertain of themselves before. Attention, please. You have, um, new reading material awaiting you. From the door, I bring back to my chair an issue of Time magazine from three weeks ago. Inside, I learn the identity of my Caucasian victim. The Canadian Prime Minister. This is what they have been hiding from me. I should have remembered his face. I study the news religiously, but who could remember such a bland, innocuous Canadian face? I trigger the intercom. Who are you? Why have you chosen to show this to me now? But there is no answer. The Canadian Prime Minister I knew did not see eye to eye with the President on foreign policy. It seems the definition of enemies in the war on terror has broadened. I wish I had studied more about history instead of math and science. Is this treachery among allies just part of the game of global politics? Is a move like this demanded by the harsh and unrelenting times we live in? What should I do if ordered again to kill another player from our side? My native intelligence and haphazard self-instruction only stretches so far. I wish now that I had never discovered my powers, never killed Tony Grasso or all the others. But I suppose it's much too late for that. I am pretty certain that it's the same woman who summons me the next day again over the intercom. I can't think of her as Dave any longer and would like to know her real name, but I don't dare ask. Astonishingly, she asks me a question. Attention, please. We know you read the magazine. Do you still want to continue to help us set things right? Something in the tone of her voice compels me to say, Yes. Yes, I do. She sounds relieved. Very well. She reverts to the formula as if finding comfort in the rigid protocol. There is a photo awaiting you in the door. Retrieve it and perform your standard function on the subject. With some eagerness, I snatch the photograph from the slot. It's a picture of the President. But there's something else accompanying it. A gift. A hand mirror. Small, like a woman would carry in her purse, but big enough for the task. I really wish I could be sure about souls. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Paul's. Paul, thank you so much. Anne Wilson, we'll have to get more of narrations from you. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Like I say, do look out for the Spider Robinsons, How to Write Science Fiction with Spider Robinson. It's what I kind of intend to do is like have like a series of these. I'm hopefully trying in, in negotiations as well with Kim Stanley Robinson. If anyone else can think of any kind of, you know, writers out there who might be up for that or who would be interested in, in doing that kind of thing as well. Get, get in touch with us. Get in touch with anyway. It's just starships over at gmail.com. Just say hello. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me.
Earth survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.